Thank you, uh, Richard Mendelson, uh, 1455 First Street in Napa. And on behalf of myself and Rob and Craig, I'd like to thank you for the invitation to discuss with you today the, what we are calling the business of the Napa Valley wine business. <clears throat> Each of us will talk for 15 minutes or so and we'll leave time for Q&A, although you should feel free to um, interrupt us at any point in time with any questions you have. Welcome. Thank you. Um, by way of uh, background, I'm not going to read through this because I, I know each of you and um, uh, suffice it to say that I've been intimately involved in the uh, Napa Valley wine business since 1986 as an attorney at um, Dickinson, Peatman and Fogarty. In 2007, um, I founded and direct the wine law and policy program at uh, UC Berkeley. Um, and the only other prefacing comment I'll make is that I've written two books that are relevant to the subject that we're going to discuss. Um, my first book from 2009 was A Legal History of Wine in the United States. It's called From Demon to Darling. And then I have a new book coming out in April, um, right around the corner, called Appalachian Napa Valley, Building and Protecting an American Treasure. So it's obviously near and dear to all of our hearts because it's about um, what's happened here in our backyard. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to start with a historical perspective and borrowing from a phrase once used by a, a judge, wine is not like milk, and kind of explain to you what that means. Um, basically, every product in the United States, using milk as an example, is subject to the um, uh, free movement of goods principle embodied in the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution, that's Article One, Section 8, um, except for alcoholic beverages. And that's a, um, uh, a historical um, a situation that goes back to prohibition in the 18th and the 21st amendments which I'll just touch on brief briefly but uh, uh, the important point is to note that wine has been highly regulated at the state local and national levels really in a way uh, that doesn't pertain to any other product in the US in fact wine along with beer and spirits which are known in the Constitution as intoxicating liquors anything with more than a half a percent alcohol by volume uh, is the only product that's mentioned twice in the US Constitution in the 18th and the 21st amendments so this is the product of what was essentially a major social cultural political legal um, uh, issue in America dating back to the founding uh, and I call it the search for temperance. Nobody really knows what temperance means. It, it means um, moderate drinking, but in historically it's ranged <clears throat> everything from don't touch spirits to drink anything you want in moderation. Courts have wrestled with this concept because it's key to what our goal is with respect to all intoxicating liquors. Um, I like to tell this story just through people and you know in in two minutes I'll do it um, first of all first person to the right there is increased Mather who was a, a reverend uh, dating back to the 1600s who said famous quote wine is from God but the drunkard is from the devil trying to um, you know get a handle the church was on on drinking and how to how to deal with that then the uh, medical profession entered the uh, equation with dr. Benjamin Rush who 
authored this great um, study on ardent spirits, really all alcoholic beverages and their effects on, on uh, health. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, we know, patron saint of wine and his famous quote about no nation is drunken where wine is cheap and none sober where the dearness of wine substitutes ardent spirits which are distilled spirits. It's a common beverage. Obviously he was a partisan of wine. Um, uh, on this road to prohibition, Henry Ford representing here the, the business community and the industrialists of the mid-1800s were important because that was the time when we were industrializing in America and, and there were factory lines and people didn't want anyone drinking on the factory line. So Henry Ford was a strong proponent as well as his colleagues joining the church and the medical profession in support of prohibition. And then we can't forget the women uh, who were instrumental both in um, uh, the adoption of national prohibition and then actually its repeal. And they range everywhere from the violent women like Carrie Nation, known as Miss Hatchetation, because she carried around that hatchet busting up bars and saloons, to Frances Willard, who was, whose bust is in the U.S. Congress or statue, and you know, great reformer, suffragette, and, and also a temperance advocate. All of which led ultimately in that brief two-minute <laughs> history lesson to the adoption um, uh, in 1919 to take effect in 1920 of national prohibition. And that essentially um, outlawed uh, the, the, the liquor trade. It didn't outlaw drinking, by the way. You could still have sellers in your home, but, but you couldn't sell or trade alcoholic beverages. And we know from anyone who's seen Boardwalk Empire, uh, I don't need to go into what happened during those 13 years of prohibition other than to say that it was sort of an unmitigated disaster. Um, uh, prohibition was not, uh, could not really effectively be enforced. And the quote I love is from a sociologist, uh, Graham Sumner, who, who looking back on prohibition said, lawways, lawways, can't change folkways. And if that was your cultural habit to drink in your home, uh, the long arm of the law was not going to be successful in stopping it. Um, <clears throat> which led then to the adoption of repeal, which is amazing because when, when the National Prohibition Amendment was passed and, uh, you know, they had already adopted a law uh, which is still on, on the uh, books today um, dealing with the liquor trade. They didn't really need a constitutional amendment, but the thought was the 18th Amendment would, um, would make this the law of the land forever. You'd never be able to repeal it, and lo and behold, 13 years later, it's repealed. The 21st Amendment is critical for the story we're telling about how wine is sold in America. I, I call it in my book, An Opportunity Lost. I, I actually, the chapter is called Solving Problems Past. We could have adopted a law, uh, a constitutional amendment in, in, in uh, 1933 that turned over to the federal government the right to control the alcohol beverage trade, and we would have one law of the land. We didn't do that. Um, instead, uh, what Section 2 says is that you have to, uh, when it comes to the delivery or use of intoxicating liquors, you have to obey state law. So we end up in this situation. Every state, as well as the federal government, it's actually you don't, it's not that there are no federal regulations, you have local, state, and federal regulations. And many of the laws, um, of course, I'm not speaking of our local land use laws, but many of the laws that govern the wine industry are. Um, 
were trying to solve the pre-prohibition problems. People were looking backwards at the problems in the late 1800s of the saloon and the like, and, and they're, quite frankly, they're antiquated. Um, so we have not only 50 different laws, we often have laws governing trade practices and sales and the like that, that are very, um, well, let's put it this way, they're not modern commerce friendly, <laughs> um, would be a good summation. So um, one of the things that um, came out of the, or that is embodied in the 21st Amendment, we call it, a, in, in jurisprudence, we call it a core value. One of the core values of the 21st Amendment is the orderly um, marketing of intoxicating liquors. So we set up a system, really state by state. Now they do vary, but there's an overarching principle of the states are allowed to adopt a system of distribution that allows for the orderly marketing of alcoholic beverages. That means the ability to track it, uh, wine throughout the distribution site, uh, system to know exactly where it is at any given point in time, to have all of the players in this um, from wineries, importers, wholesalers, retailers be licensed and permitted so they're actually, you know, they, they hold a license either at the state and or federal levels. The goods are taxed at each level and the trade practices are controlled. So we get a very um, controlled system by definition. We call it a three-tier distribution system because even though the 21st Amendment doesn't require it, most states adopted a system where if you're shipping, let's say, wine from state B into state A, you don't simply, at least at the time after repeal, you couldn't ship directly to a consumer. You couldn't ship directly to a retailer in another state. You had to go through a wholesaler or an importer. So there was this very, um, and of course, each step takes a margin, you know, uh, so the cost of the goods are going up as it goes through the distribution cycle, but this was part of orderly marketing. And that's the way it was really for a very long time. Um, and then I want to roll forward to what's changed. And this is maybe the critical um, slide of the whole um, presentation. Because in 1995, as you're going through this um, three-tier system, you had quite a few wineries, 1,800, but you have even more distributors. So the wineries were able to abide by this three-tier distribution system by finding a distributor in every state. And then that distributor would sell to local retailers who would sell to local consumers. What's changed, and this, these numbers have changed since the last time we presented this, I updated it, there are now actually close to 9,000 wineries in the United States. And the number, so that's a, what, that's a five, almost a five-fold uh, increase, uh, but the distributors have gone from 3,000 down to 675, and the top four distributors in America control 60 percent of sales. And, and just in the last year, Southern Wine Spirits merged with um, Glazers. They're the now number one. They're called Southern Glazers. Wurtz Beverage Group merged with Charmer Sunbelt. So even the, the they were always in the top ten. Even those in the top ten have now merged, and you lead to this situation where the top four control this percentage of the market. Meaning that these increased number of wineries are finding it harder and harder to find representation to get in, their products sold in these states. The, the other thing that's cha changed is consolidation amongst the producers. So even though there are almost 9,000 wineries, the top 10 wineries control 79% of sales. And you know those names. It's the, the, you know, the top uh, uh, winery producers by volume or Gallo, the wine group, Constellation, Bronco, Treasury. Uh, 
together the top ten um, who are going to be able to command the attention of the smaller number of distributors. So this means that it, it's even more difficult for the rest of the wineries, that 21%, to really find distributor representation. What happened to change all this was a series of uh, events really starting in the 70s in New York. New York was the first country uh, first state in the country to adopt what that were called farm licenses. Wineries received farm licenses. And that meant that unlike beer and spirits, the idea, and it's tied to the concept of terroir for, for wine, was that you were making your wine in a, a given community and you had a farm winery license that allowed you, like a farm and farmer's market, to be able to sell right out of your cellar door to the person who came to visit. That wasn't true with beer or spirits. It was part of your farm, uh, so this ability to sell directly. And of course, historically, San Franciscans always came to Napa as far back as pre-prohibition to buy their wines. But with the rise of the internet in the 90s and the ability not just to go to the winery to get your wine ex-seller, what we call ex-seller, seller door, um, you could actually use the internet to place your order. But what happened was a major legal quandary. States started to allow in-state consumers to come visit a winery and the winery could then ship the wine to those consumers but they were many of them were disallowing consumers out of state to do the same thing respecting the three-tier system that you know for for interstate trade and that became the subject of a um, uh, Supreme Court case Granholm versus Held um, uh, involving the Michigan and New York laws where both states allowed their in-state wineries to ship wine directly to consumers inside the state but disallowed uh, any um, out-of-state winery to ship directly to Michigan or New York consumers. So it was discriminatory and that was the uh, court case. What's interesting about it after Scalia's uh, um, untimely death is that he was the swing vote. I was part, uh, intimately involved in that case. I did not argue it, but I, I know exactly what happened and was there when it was argued before the U.S. Supreme Court. And I can tell you that we knew that Scalia was going to be uh, the critical vote uh, because four of the justices were against and four we know from their past voting were four. And he actually was the fifth vote to um, overturn these discriminatory state laws. The Supreme Court didn't say to each of the states, you must open your market to wine shipments to your consumers from anywhere. It just said don't discriminate. So we went through a period of time shown in this map, uh, these uh, uh, maps, uh, one from 2004 and one from 2014, where uh, the landscape with the multicolored in the upper left, uh, you had some states that did little trade packs with other states like California and Oregon. California would let a California winery ship a certain amount of wine per month to an Oregon consumer if Oregon allowed their wineries to do the same. I mean, there's little trade packs inside the U.S., which the Supreme Court just completely hammered. That's not what the United States is all about, trade packs between given states. Um, then you had the blue states where you could get a license to do direct shipping, and then all of those red or they look brown there states where it was illegal and sometimes a felony. Well, that now has turned into a sea of blue, meaning that most states leveled up. They allowed, 
they wanted to preserve the right for their own wineries to ship to uh, consumers in their own state, so they had to open the doors to outside wineries to do the same thing. And that's generally what's happened. That was the state in 2014. And what's interesting about this is it's state by state going back to that slide with the 50 states. So, for example, you want, may not notice the difference unless you study this, but the difference between the map on the bottom right, which is 2014, and then we go to 2015, there's only one difference. And that's the state of Massachusetts, which in the beginning of January of 15 turned into a direct shipping state after massive litigation, and they finally passed a law to allow it. And then, actually, if you rolled 115-15 to today, you'd see one other change, which is uh, the state of, Sandy, of uh, South Dakota, which just um, uh, last month uh, authorized direct shipping to consumers. So the landscape changes, but by and large, we've opened a new channel for wineries. They can still use their wholesalers, but wineries can now sell in these states with a permit, with a license, uh, to consumers. So it really was true what the Wall Street Journal said in 2006 after the, the Granholm case had been decided. Wine sales thrive as old barriers start to crumble. This three-tier system was starting to crumble. And you had more distribution options, particularly for uh, the three tiers. And, and you can see the bottom there, and we aren't going to go into the legal background here, but Costco challenges the three tiers. Costco is the largest seller of wine at the retail level in America. You know, they, they would like to buy directly from producers, too, without having to go through wholesalers. So the whole system, antiquated system of going through three tiers has been um, under attack ever since. And then, the, by way of conclusion, and I'll turn it over next to Rob and, 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 and then to Craig to fill out the picture, I'd say there are two slides that really tell the story. One is the change from 1995 to 2015, 20 years later, with many, many wineries, a lot of consolidation in the top ten, and an ever-shrinking number of uh, distributors around the country now with the top four uh, controlling most of the market. And then also this state-by-state -state opening of markets to allow the Napa Valley winery, with a permit in those states marked blue, to be able to ship directly to consumers in those states, which was not an option we ever had in the past. And a very valuable option given how hard it is to find wholesaler representation, certainly for the small wineries. And with that, um, Thank you for your attention, and um, unless you have questions now, we can leave time at the end. Um, I'll turn it over to Rob. Any questions for Mr. Mendelson? Thank you. All right, thank you.